Want to make some improvements in your life? Well, then check out Bulletproof Radio. I'm Dave Asprey, founder of the Bulletproof Executive and creator of Bulletproof Coffee. Each week on Bulletproof Radio, you'll hear from thought leaders and visionaries from around the world to learn what it takes to live in a state of high performance, where you're in control of your own biology. Look better, feel better, be better. Be one of the supercharged thousands improving their lives every week by downloading Bulletproof Radio at PodcastOne.com. The following program is a PodcastOne.com production. I'm Brett Easton Ellis, and you're listening to the Brett Easton Ellis Podcast, and I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, the film critic Owen Gleiberman. An embarrassing thing happened to me last month that got me into trouble and made it seem, um, as a person who records erratically a podcast about the waning days of film culture, the rise of victim culture, the aesthetic failure of the democratization of the arts, and the nightmarish authoritarian language policing of PC culture... It seemed as if I was imbued with some kind of Hollywood insider status and had some kind of vested interest in how the new Batman script was turning out. The event, the controversy, proved me to be a reckless gossip, a poser, untrustworthy. And yet on the other side of the aisle, fanboys cheered me on as if I had confirmed their darkest fears and worries about the pre-production of The Batman, ostensibly a new movie that is in various phases of pre-production and that Ben Affleck is writing with Jeff Johns, and Affleck will direct when it moves forward. And key roles have already been cast with Affleck as Bruce Wayne, Joe Manganiello as Deathstroke, and Jeremy Irons as Alfred. Well, what happened exactly? I'll quickly sum it up. I was at a business dinner with two development executives from a digital media company. Oh, how that sends a chill for me, but it happened, and it has happened before and will probably happen again, concerning a project that they were interested in me both writing and directing since they had seen the first season of The Deleted, the digital series I'd created for full screen, and that will premiere in December. And we were talking about what comes next. The meeting was on the half-empty patio at the Chateau Marmont, where these dinners usually take place, and it was a pleasant night. I was a little buzzed, and dinner lasted a leisurely two and a half hours, and much of the talk wasn't about what I was going to do next. It was more about what was going on around town in terms of projects, web series, how much better TV is now, but certainly lots and lots of crap. And, of course, the future of movies. Is there one? And we all commiserated on how bad movies have been in 2016, not just during the truly dismal summer of 2016, but what looks like an incredibly threadbare award season as well. 
For about one minute, the two execs compared notes on the development of the new Batman script, which at that point I knew nothing about. I didn't even know Ben Affleck was writing it, and I wouldn't realize this until after the controversy hit. I was kind of paying attention, but also distracted by someone I had had a falling out with seven years ago and who was at a nearby table as the execs were talking about people they knew involved in the Batman production and who had relayed to the execs I was having dinner with the problems with the script and that no one was listening to notes. It was all kind of vague. But the reasoning why the notes didn't matter, and by the way, I am very suspicious about execs talking among themselves about notes making anything better. Far more often in Hollywood, notes harm projects more than they help. Giving notes is just part of the job, whether a project needs them or not. But the reasoning why the notes didn't matter dovetailed nicely with the common complaints about American movies in the global marketplace and how the money, often up to 70% of the overall gross of a movie, has changed the way studios approach the creative side of making films. This is not written anywhere. There is no handbook about this. It's a theory, widely discussed, that offers a reason why the studio extravaganzas that play so well in China and around the globe are so bland and uninteresting and lack any kind of idiosyncratic mood or atmosphere or American-style, generic, plot-for-plot-sake, sexless, endless action sequences. Everyone knows the drill. So boring. And the execs I was with said they were told that this seemed to be what was happening with this new installment of Batman. This was third-party info that I was taking in as a guest at a business dinner, and I forgot about it. This was roughly one minute of gossip in a 150-minute conversation. Soon it was time to call an Uber, and as I floated across a deserted Sunset Boulevard toward my place in West Hollywood, I realized vaguely that this meeting, like so many out here, wasn't probably going to lead to anything. Later that week, I found myself being interviewed by The Ringer about the current state of movie culture and are movies a dying art form. I'm not a film critic. I'm not a professional journalist who writes about the business. I'm not a filmmaker. As a content creator, I'm on the fringes of the business, like just about everyone else in our DIY culture. Yes, in Hollywood, there is a 1%, and then everyone else who was trying to figure out how to make money in this new moment. However, because of this podcast, people assume I'm all three, and I'm inundated with requests to talk about the current state of movie culture, and I turn them all down. Well, why? Well, because I can talk about it on this podcast. Why would I waste my time giving interviews about the death of film culture when I can just talk about it on my own private podcast? I didn't answer Sean Fennessy's first request for an interview, and when he asked again, I was about to quickly say no, when through a combination of flattery and the promise that it would be very quick, I agreed, and we had a conversation that lasted between 30 and 40 minutes, I believe, and I became somewhat passionate and began to debunk what I saw as certain naive theories about everything being cyclical and movies still being great and not being over and how globalization has not destroyed the aesthetics of the American movie. And I used that bit of info I had picked up the other night at dinner, relaying everything in a rush about what I had heard about the new Batman movie as an example of this, a rebuke. And Sean and I went back and forth, and then we finished up, and I was done and out the door, and that was it. I had forgotten about the interview until the piece was posted soon afterwards, and Sean emailed me a link, and I quickly looked over it and was surprised again by how naive New York Times critic Manila Dargis seemed in her defense of where movies are going, how naive fantasy seemed about debunking the movies are dead thesis at the heart of the piece. Arrival is a game changer. Um, no, sorry, Sean. Having just seen it this weekend, it's not much of anything, though it does contain the best opening 40 minutes of any American movie I've seen so far this year. 
and then there's the following 80. I was interested by what producer Chris Moore had to say in the article, and I was interested in whatever Mark Harris has to say. Harris is the author of one of the best movie books ever, Pictures at a Revolution, Five Movies, and the Birth of the New Hollywood, even though I usually disagree with him about movies. And I found it annoying that the reporter had to add in a little dig about me when I remarked after Mark Harris said that exemplary movies, oh, I do not want to see an exemplary movie, Exemplary movies like Hell or High Water and Moonlight opened this year, and I dismissed that by saying both movies were hugely overpraised by the press, with Fennessy having to add in after my remark, there's no accounting for taste. And anyone who thinks the cutesy, stilted pretension of the lobster is bedazzling and their favorite movie-going experience of the year, we are probably not going to be sitting at the same table in the cafeteria. The one thing I didn't really notice on first glance is the fact that Fennessy quoted verbatim that little something I'd heard about the Batman script that night at the Chateau. I didn't notice it until I started seeing on my Twitter feed people reposting articles that were based on those 50 seconds of third-party info. And though I thought, I hoped, it would pass, and it did, but not before a full-on social media meltdown occurred. And oddly enough, I was seen as someone who had become a kind of whistleblower, Even though I knew nothing, I somehow confirmed what every fanboy's fear was, especially considering how much they had disliked the last Batman movie, that this one was going to be as bad, if not worse, because no one cares about it, and by extension, no one cares about them, the fanboys. The little grips of stress I brushed off were really just a manifestation of how crummy I felt about disparaging a movie that I knew nothing about, and honestly hadn't even realized I mentioned to the reporter And I also didn't like how the controversy made it seem like I was a Hollywood insider. I'm definitely not. And that I had somehow made myself invested in the Batman project. That Friday and Saturday, there were so many pieces about what I had said that I stopped reading them. I had work and errands to do, and I moved on. But it gnawed at me, this controversy that was going through the usual 24, 48-hour time span before it dissipates and some fresh new outrage becomes the preoccupation. And so to clarify everything, I posted a short note on my Twitter and Facebook pages Friday afternoon, which then started a whole new controversy. On Saturday night, while I was sitting in my office with my boyfriend and we were figuring out what to do about dinner and what movie we were going to watch that night, I glanced at my emails and saw that Ben Affleck had just emailed me. I sighed and opened the email, bracing myself. I've never met Ben Affleck, and my boyfriend asked, how did he get your email? I murmured, it's very easy to get someone's private email address in Hollywood, and momentarily realized, there, I just acted like a beleaguered Hollywood insider. Ben's email was brief, genuine, only a little pissy, and I emailed him back the next day explaining what had happened. That's it. I didn't hear back from him. I learned really nothing from this, and a lot of people in social media who are fans of mine took me to task for clarifying and, God forbid, apologizing because they already thought I was very clear in the Ringer article about the info, and there was no need for me to clarify any further. And why would I also apologize for what everyone in the world is thinking about the Batman movie's creative prospects anyway? The one thing I did learn was that everyone cared about, on some level, from different vantage points, a movie. And this surprised me. I'd had a meeting where movies were talked about. I gave an interview to a journalist who was writing about movies. A comment I had made generated enough controversy about a movie to fill 900 international posts over a weekend. A movie star who was writing a movie had actually emailed me because of gossip I had blurted out about his movie. Movies. Do movies still matter? 
maybe they do. I've been depressed about the current state of movies, but suddenly a movie mattered to a lot of people. Film critic Owen Gleiberman is on the podcast, and I haven't had a film critic on this podcast since Alonzo Duralde from The Rap was on over uh, two and a half years ago, and since then, so much has devolved. I loved reading Paul and Kale since I was a kid when my aunt, who knew I was movie mad, gave me a hardcover copy of Kale's collection of reviews from 1972-1975 called Reeling when I was 12. And I became a fanatic Kale reader ever since. Yes, I was one of the countless who knelt at her shrine. However, I never wanted to be a film critic, though all of my friends growing up in L.A. were fantastically opinionated about movies and up to date on the making of them since so many of their parents worked in the business. I actually wanted to be a writer and at some point make movies, and making movies was still the plan until I got distracted by writing novels for about 30 years. And though I became obsessed with Paul and Kale, I had no interest in becoming a critic. But in 1999, I was a film critic for about a year and a half for a long-ago defunct men's magazine called Gear. That's G-E-A-R, listeners. And got a slight taste of what being a semi-professional critic would be like. I was doing a year-long world tour for Glamorama that included two month-long stints across the U.S., one month for the hardcover, one month for the paperback, as well as spending endless time everywhere from the U.K. to Italy and the Netherlands and Spain and throughout 18 cities in Germany and on and on and on. It would be a year of constant traveling and promotion because I was making up for the fact that I had never done a book tour before, even though this was my fifth published book. So this became an extended tour that made up for lost time and became my life in 1999 and into 2000, about 16 months publishing has changed so much since then. And I had become friendly with Spin Magazine editor-in-chief and publisher Bob Guccione Jr. in the 90s, and he wanted me to have a monthly column in his new venture, Gear, a kind of American version of the lad magazines like Loaded that had flooded the UK during the 1990s, and where I could write about anything I wanted. But I told him I would barely be around and would be dropping in and out of my home base in New York every few weeks or sometimes not for a month or two, and how could I accommodate the magazine on that schedule? Well, 
why not have a movie column? You could see a bunch of movies on your breaks from touring when you came back to New York and, you know, choose to review one every month. You could write the pieces on the road, easy lifting, no worries. And this is what they had come up with. I thought I could use the distraction between jaunts, and it would be a way to make some cash since Guccione was willing to pay me a lot of money that I wouldn't be making anywhere else during that year of constant travel. He was also, of course, paying me this small fortune, hoping that my name would help promote the magazine. Gear would schedule a group of screenings for me when I was back in town, and then I would see the movies and choose what to write about. And I found out very quickly that there actually was very little I wanted to write about after haunting the screening rooms around Manhattan in 1999. There were one or two during that period that I was passionate about, Fight Club prominently among them, which blew me away and which I wrote a rave of, calling it a pop masterpiece, and which was published a month before the movie was released and which 20th Century Fox quoted prominently in their print ads, which Gear was grateful for, even though I had many friends who thought the movie was quote-unquote retarded. And I really liked Doug Lyman's Go!, And um, then there was the review of Mary Heron's American Psycho in the spring of 2000, which was my last review for the magazine. And I realized that this was what the gig was heading for, that this was what Gear wanted all along, the culmination of my stint. Gear would be getting my review of the movie version of my novel, and that would be it for the gig. No one else would be getting that. It would be an exclusive. Because ultimately, they were paying me far too much money for me to be reviewing the latest Alison Anders movie, or the Annabelle Chong story, or Ang Lee's barely released Western, and other movies that I wrote about that just didn't interest me, like um, Man in the Moon, the Jim Carrey, Andy Kaufman biopic, or ones that I actively disliked that readers of the magazine should have loved, such as the Danny Boyle Leo adaptation of The Beach. And it wasn't that much fun sitting in dreary screening rooms trying to find anything to review. Because of the magazine's lead time, I missed out on reviewing Eyes Wide Shut and The Blair Witch Project, two movies from 1999 that I liked a lot. So I was fired by my hard-parting editor at the magazine, Jack Wright, over the phone. It was time anyway. The book tour was over, and it was time to get to work on a novel that I'd been thinking about since Less Than Zero and which I was just now figuring out how to do. The film critic gig wasn't for me, and though I talk about movies on this podcast, I often review a film in the context of the overall culture it is being released into. And since I'm not beholden to anybody, I can talk about any film I want, and at any length I want, as well as on a variety of other subjects. And I don't want watching movies to be seen as a paid responsibility. Which I'm not sure is what you are allowed as the chief film critic for Variety, which is where Owen Gleiberman is at now. For those of you Gen Xers, Gleiberman became very well known as the lead film critic for Time Warner's experiment in pop culture roundupping called Entertainment Weekly that appeared in 1990. And he was young, even though before this 24-year gig came to an end, he had already been a film critic at the Boston Phoenix for eight years during his 20s. You might have been drawn to Gleiberman's EW reviews as a person of a certain demo because you could feel the pulse of Pauline Kael in his reviews, who was a god to Gleiberman, as she was to so many of us. And why is it I find so many men are acolytes and yet so few women are as vocally obsessed with Pauline's work? Who grew up in the golden age of the 1970s, he seemed to be a Paulette. She helped make him a critic, even though he really wasn't one. And in Gleiberman's fascinating new book, Movie Freak, My Life Watching Movies, he details not only his relationship with Kale, but also catalogs the movies that changed him. 
what it was like working as a film critic under increasingly corporate rule at EW and staying true to your opinions, as well as talking openly about porn addiction, horror movies, coke usage, and his distant and unhappy father. Ooh, all things right up my alley. You have been warned. Like Kale, he also is highly aware of the connection between watching movies and sex. The connection between noir and porn, for example. He writes, quote, You can consume an entire work in 90 minutes to two hours, and then, just like that, you're on to the next. It's the perfect aesthetic surrogate for sex because the two have so much in common. No matter how any individual movie works out, the promise of ecstasy is always there. Reading Movie Freak is akin to charting the life of a certain kind of American male written by a boomer who really feels and acts like a Gen Xer. Gliberman is five years older than me, but we shared what it meant to be a kid in the long-ago 1960s and 70s. Drive-in movies, horror movies, horror movies, horror movies, The Little House on the Prairie Books and Harriet the Spy, Boone's Farm Apple Wine, The Saturday Double and Triple Matinees, Blue Oyster Cult, Mad Magazine, Distant Dads, Beatles Nostalgia, Hanging Out in Pinball and Video Arcades, Growing Up in the Everything's a Scam and Everyone's an Idiot Culture, Raised on a Need for Dirtiness. I was going to do something with you, Owen, that I had done with Alonzo, which was list the things I had liked in movies so far in um, 2014. That's when we recorded our podcast that August. And I'm not talking about the movies themselves because I hadn't liked anything so far that year uh, or anything I was passionate about. But I listed the things I liked within movies I saw, Um, a scene, a performance, a special effect, a shot, a hot dude. And I tried to do that with 2016 with you, and I couldn't, though we will get to the two or three I came up with at the end of this podcast. But there was so little that I really, really liked, which leads to one of the main questions I want to ask you. And I've been thinking about a lot, knowing that you're going to come on the podcast, which is why in the hell would anyone want to be a movie critic now? Well, it's still the best job in the world. Um I still love it. And uh, it's still about addiction for me. Yes. Um, I think a thing that you and I share, I mean, look, my book is a book about movie obsession. And so what I'm always looking for, what I have been ever since I became a movie junkie in the late 70s, is I'm looking for that movie that totally floats my boat. That's just like, I love this. I want to see it again and again. I can become obsessed with it. I get the feeling you're the same way. I am the same way. And I've talked about this on the podcast, but I am still addicted. I'm still a junkie. I still go and see most everything. Yeah. But the number of those movies that come out is going to be pretty small. And when you're a critic, you have to get used to the idea that that's not going to happen very often. Yes. But... I still always have that hunger. Every time I go into a movie, it's like, I want it to be one of those movies. I find that what can determine how you feel about a year is like two or three movies. Like, I agree with you that 2016 has seemed kind of soft. I will stand up for Hell or High Water. I think it's an amazing movie. Mm-hmm. I agree with you about Moonlight. We should talk about it. I think it's overpraised. Yes. But when I think back to, say, 2015, a year I really liked, you go, well, what's so great about that year? Uh, two movies stand out, my top two movies of the year, and they were so different that they got me totally jazzed about movies. My favorite movie of the year was Carol. Mm-hmm. Did you like it? 
Uh, I, I talked about it on the podcast with Quentin, and I thought it was uh, Todd Haynes playing with his dolls in his dollhouse with their minks and cigarette lighters and aestheticizing everything into an abstraction. And I found the movie so cold, so unerotic, a, a, a Xerox of a Xerox of a yeah. Xerox. I, I, I've had a very hard time. Uh, with with Todd Haynes. See, so interesting to me that there's like two totally different views of that movie. On the one hand, yours is kind of like seeing it almost as this postmodern thing. Mm-hmm. I saw it as like I think you could watch that movie and love it if you've never heard of Todd Haynes and you didn't care about any of that stuff. I think it almost plays like a Hitchcock movie. But it's also a betrayal of its source material because the material itself, the Patricia Highsmith material, is very pulpy, very dikey, very rough-and-tumble New York lesbian culture. And this is some sort of idealization of that world. And it becomes a major movie for the LGBTQ community, which... The book and the source material was not at all. Well, I don't think that's necessarily a problem. He may have changed the source material. It may be less rough and dikey, but that's okay. I think he has the right to do that. Of course he does. But what I was going to say is that I love that movie and I love the Mad Max film. And just those two movies last year made me feel, wow, 2015 is great. And I think that's kind of the way it works. The number of really extraordinary films that are going to come out in any Any year year, and the ones that are going to make you say, oh, that was great. You know, a lot of people say 1999 was an amazing year. They're talking about four films. Yes. Um, For me, it's always whenever I do a 10 best list, there's two halves of it. There are those films that I don't even choose. They choose me. Correct. Those ones that, you know, whatever my number one movie of the year is, the next maybe three, four, maybe five those are the extraordinary films. And then after that, when you're making a 10, le- 10 best list, you have like 15, 20, maybe 30 films that are good, and they kind of fall into place. And, you know, your 9 or 10, that could, it could, you know, exchange with your 11 or 12. But that's kind of the way it's always been. I don't think there's that many extraordinary films. And I think you have to accept that. But I think they're still being made. So I'm actually one of those people who will stand up for the idea that, I mean, I can't be a working critic and say otherwise, but I really do mean that I don't think movie culture is over. I think the big thing that's changed is this issue of the conversation. And there's no question about it. The conversation has moved over to television. It's funny. I was out in New York with a couple of friends of mine, this guy who actually is a programmer at the Tribeca Film Festival, so he's totally Mr. Movie. And I was out with him and his girlfriend, and we were talking all about movies. Talking for like an hour, and then suddenly somebody brought up Vinyl, a show that we all agreed was you know far from great, but maybe not quite as bad as some people were saying. There were certain elements of interest. We started talking about it. You could, we, here were three like hardcore film buffs. I could feel the conversation get jazzed. There was something, even though vinyl wasn't a great show, there was something fascinating about deconstructing it. And then the waitress came over and she said, oh, are you guys talking about vinyl? Because I think that show's actually pretty good. So you could feel the excitement in talking about that. There's just something about television that it's, even when it's not good, it's surprising us now in ways that movies aren't. And I think that's a change. The other thing that's affected what we think, how we think about movie culture is just, it's fragmented like everything else. Everything is fragmented, including politics. I mean, that's one of the reasons Trump won, right? Because of the fragmentation of information. This idea that there's a hundred different sources of information, we don't share any of them. But when that happens to movies, that feels cataclysmic because in the 20th century, 
movies were the thing that drew us together. That's one of the things that defined them. Now the only thing that draws us together is the Super Bowl. You know, I was thinking about another reason why movies have a strange future out of them. On Halloween, my boyfriend, who is 30, and myself stayed in this year and decided to watch a couple of horror films. And I was to choose them since Todd is not into horror movies. But in the spirit of the holiday, he decided that this is the one night he should watch a couple. So I looked around on Apple and um, asked him if he'd ever seen the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And to my surprise, he hadn't. So we decided on a double feature of Texas Chainsaw and then Polanski's Repulsion, only because we were on a Catherine Deneuve kick and Todd had been entranced by her and hadn't seen that either. So we started with Texas Chainsaw, uh, which Owen has called a, quote-unquote, shoestring masterpiece that reaches new levels of barbaric dementia. And we turned out the lights in the bedroom with me on the bed and Todd sitting on the floor up close to large screen TV. And the uh, Halloween parade uh, below us on Santa Monica Boulevard was drifting up as background noise. I'd seen the movie only once or twice since I originally saw it as a teenager when it was in that re-release in the early 80s. And I was old enough to get in. And I was often watching Todd watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre as much as I was watching it because I didn't know how it would go for him. I thought it might be too much for him because... I clearly remember the feeling I had seeing it in a multiplex in Tarzana that first time by myself on a packed matinee on a Sunday. And it felt dangerous to be in that theater. I mean, from the opening moments, I remember being feeling so creeped out, uh, completely alone, sickly scared, and on the verge of an anxiety attack. And the movie was like a force of nature. The sick beauty of the movie, the art of it, is what made the experience bearable, ultimately, and ultimately pleasurable. But part of my terror had to do with the fact that I was miles from home, I was surrounded by strangers, I was in a darkened theater. Todd, uh, he asked me to pause it uh, once to use the bathroom, even though it's only 85 minutes long. But I was more impressed with the movie than ever. And I didn't know what he was going to think about it or say about it. And then I asked him, and he turned to me and said, that was fucking amazing. That is a work of art and could easily be in my top ten of all time. And I asked him if he had uh, been as scared as I had been, perhaps, when I first saw it. And he shrugged. And he said, I guess it was scary. But he gestured. I mean, we were in the safety of a bedroom in our condo. And he knew that it ever upset him too much. He could have paused it. He could have walked into the kitchen to make a sandwich. It's not as if he had to watch it. There was always something else to turn to. You know, a, a very different movie environment than the one we came of age in. And I don't think there is a comparable theatrical event to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre for a millennial And this is an example, I think, of why movies don't mean as much to a younger generation. The way you can have access to any movie you want and the way that you view it. What does this mean about the future of movies? Well, I think you're right that the way we view movies and, you know, the streaming, the fact that they're so accessible has demystified them in a way. I think the whole culture is being demystified. True. I mean, I think this is a larger thing than movies. I feel like that's why we feel like we don't have religion anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I agree with you about Texas Chainsaw. That's just one of those extraordinary movies. It's sort of the it's the psycho of the the post counterculture, Mm -hmm. and you can just watch it again and again. And I do, although I haven't seen it recently. Um, But I think we have to accept. I mean, look, I'm as much of a luddite about technology and what it's doing to us as anybody. But I think we have to accept going forward that technology and information 
and that world we're living in now isn't the end of spirituality in life. And it's not the end of spirituality in movies. I still think that's out there. I still think that kind of connection that you can have with a movie that you felt with Texas Chainsaw Massacre is available. I think it hasn't happened in horror because in some ways every horror movie or a whole bunch of them that came afterwards have been trying to remake Texas Chainsaw. I mean, that movie's yes. been remade for 30 or 40 years. Right. I'm not even talking about literal remakes. Right. Um, and we have to wait for something new, and it will happen. You know, like Ileana Douglas, who was talking about this on the podcast, and myself, as well as yourself, our movie narratives start uh, at the drive-in, of all places. And I realize how ancient that makes us all sound. But this was the place where we saw things that we should have never seen at 7 or 8 or 9. But certainly our parents were much more permissive than the helicoptering parents of today are. Again, as I said, you're older than me and Ileana by about five years. But we all had parents who were of a certain generation who got jazzed up by movies and passed that excitement on to us in a way. And for many, it started with the drive-in and how dark and sinister and twisted and cynical and explicit movies were becoming then in that moment. What you called part of the sick thrill of the dark ride. And this was because the nature of mainstream movies was different then. And usually my parents chose movies they wanted to see and they did not hand it off to the children. I mean, right. my parents never went to a kiddie movie with me or held my sister's hand. They, you know, they dropped the kids off. And I guess uh, they thought the kids were sleeping in the backseat at the drive-in because my parents, you know, probably didn't want to get a babysitter. And I'm not sure if my parents were aware or cared that I was catching the bloody operating room gore of MASH. I don't think they cared particularly, but I was in that back seat watching those images. And I just can't believe, looking back, the movies uh, my parents let me see. I was eight when my father took me to see Billy Jack and Tales from the Crypt, and a year later to see The Legend of the Hell House and Theater of Blood, and going with my friends at nine to a double feature of and the boy who cried werewolf, and the next day seeing children shouldn't play with dead things, and at 10 watching Black Christmas on the Z channel. I mean, you could argue it fucked us all up on some level, or maybe it made us tougher compared to Generation Wuss. I, I think it did both those things, and I think it also opened us up to something because a lot of those were great movies. But look, I went through the same thing. I mean, I joke in my book that it was almost borderline child abuse that my parents – I saw all those movies. I saw MASH at the drive-in. Mm -hmm. I saw Midnight Cowboy. Uh, but yeah. it wasn't just about the gore and the explicitness. It was about the serious adult subject matter. I mean, I remember being so fascinated and disturbed by – that whole sequence early on in Midnight Cowboy where Joe Buck goes up to Sylvia Miles' oh, apartment yeah. mm -hmm. and it's like, you know, the dog is tugging down his pants. It's like, what is going on there? Um, it was so disturbing to me and fascinating. Um, but I think there was something very, I don't know, very pure about going to see those movies because um, they seemed real. And I think they were they were truthful, and we connected to those sides of them. And I think these days, you know, kids have a lot available on the Internet. They may be seeing more explicit stuff than we were beforehand, but it's kind of emotionally hollow. I think what we were connecting to in those films, movies like, for me, Rosemary's Baby or The Boston Strangler or In Cold Blood or Midnight Cowboy – we're connecting to a certain truth that they were about. I mean, that's why I feel like I became 
just a religious movie fanatic seeing those films. Well, so what are the kids connecting to today? And is it movies? I mean, I... No, I don't think it, it is. No, of course it's not. But it, but in in movie culture, that's why they are connecting to, you know, certain Pixar movies, I guess. And um, maybe that's it. Maybe that's even... that Maybe that's even stretching... Uh, well, here's one thing they're connecting to. Go back to your your whole thing about the Batman and about what the obsession is. I mean, you were suggesting that maybe this means that movies matter. Uh, but I'm very suspect about the obsession with superhero movies. There's nothing wrong with superhero movies. Yes. But I feel like, and this goes back to, in a way, Lord of the Rings, I feel like fanboy culture, geek culture, I feel like, in a way, the dirty secret of it, it's that it's this kind of encyclopedia culture. Yeah. I mean, the fans are obsessed with the minutia mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. And... That's kind of what's already going on about this movie. You know, is it going yeah. to be this or is it going to be that? Um, and yet, once the movies come out, they've been out for about a year or so, and you think back on it, most of these movies are not very good. No. They're corporate products. Right. And that's true of the Harry Potter films. Yeah. And so what you have now, I think, is a generation that's obsessed with corporate products and the information that's in them. I think the Harry Potter movies are a good example of that because I just got tired of those after a while. Yeah. I mean, nothing that was going on in them seemed to be of every, of any consequence. Right. And that's kind of what is happening with these interconnected franchise movies where the comic book characters all become like pieces of Tinker Toy and they're all in the... Like, I really was appalled by, on some level, the third Captain America film because mm-hmm. it turned into an Avengers film. Yeah. And they were just... Pouring all these characters in the movie to because it was there was more selling points, and yet I think the fans are fine with that because they're just relating to all these characters, all this information flowing through these movies. I think that's a totally different experience than experiencing a great movie, even a great comic book movie. You look at what a lot of us think is you know maybe the best comic book movie that came out, The Dark Knight. Yes, the whole thing about that is. That's a real movie. Yes, correct. It's yeah. about Batman, but it's not about information. It's about a real experience. The Joker is a real character. Even Batman seems like a real character. But clearly, even though many agree that, that you know that's number one, that's an anomaly. I don't yes. think The Dark Knight is what comic book culture is about. Comic book culture, like Lord of the Rings culture, like Star Wars culture, like Harry Potter culture, this is all information culture. These are like cinematically dramatized Wikipedia entries. What is going to be the information? What is going to happen next in these serial dramas? On some level, my my uh, my answer is who cares? I don't care about all that information. I don't care about these um, these networks of storylines. Yes. I care about a good movie experience, which can happen within these genres, but seldom does.
lives on the moon. But I'll be back home in June to promote the sequel. There is that notion of movies turning one into a voyeur. And this is the appeal. You write, quote, watching a film as a way to hide from the world and spy on it at the same time is one of the best descriptions of movie watching that I've ever read. You also write at one point, quote, the movies that were turning out to be my touchstones all glorify the allure of bad behavior, the thrilling rightness of actions that were wrong. And in that spirit, your life-changing movie was Brian De Palma's Carrie in 1976, and I guess you were 17. That's right. Mine was also a De Palma movie, but I was 11, and it was a couple of years earlier than your revelation. It was Phantom of the Paradise that I saw over Christmas break in 1974 when I walked to our local movie theater and watched a weekday matinee in an empty Art Deco movie palace, and my life changed. And I became as connected to that movie, its look... Uh, its attitude, its style, its music, as uh, I suppose young kids today feel about Frozen. Carrie, for you, what happened? Why that? Because I think Carrie is the ultimate alienated adolescent movie. And that's just, that's it. I mean, she is the most, the most alienated, the most damaged, and in a way, the most heartfelt and soulful character. I mean... Sissy SpaceX performance through some combination of Stephen King's original material, what De Palma did, what Sissy SpaceX brought to that role. That character just seems impossibly deep. She seems like this real damaged wallflower that's there in school. And I think there are certain people who relate to that movie, and I think it has to do with your background. I mean, I definitely had some of that coming from the kind of house that I did, coming you know from the fight of father that I had. When you have one of those cold, distant bullying dads that's going to do something to you and i think that's part of what makes you relate to someone like carrie white but i think something else happened to me with carrie um because i was a little too young to go see it couldn't get in but uh a review of carrie by paul and kale changed the way i looked at not only that movie that i wanted to see but other things as well you personally think that the new hollywood began its decline with the release of rocky and uh, tarantino agrees with you um quote with its on the waterfront redone by capra sentimentality and its tearful happy ending that revived after a decade of downer scuzziness the whole feel-good ideology of happy endings in many ways rocky was the dawn of reaganism that's right and yet you are becoming a full-fledged movie freak in those last couple of months in 1976. It was a pretty good year for American movies. There is also your discovery of Pauline Kael, the New Yorker film critic, with her very famous review of Carrie, a review that changed my mind on how to watch movies, high culture, low culture, pop culture. That review of Carrie altered my aesthetics, and in much the same way that Kale's review of Godard's Band of Outsiders changed Tarantino's aesthetics as well. And then this leads to you seeing another movie that had been released the previous year, but that you now caught at a repertory theater. It was the movie that um, changed everything for you. And this movie, along with reading the film criticism of Paul and Kale, turns you into a film critic, essentially. And that was Robert Altman's Nashville. And you call it the most radically enthralling movie that you had ever seen, and that it still is. And I might just concur with you on that. So the one-two punch... Nashville has visionary new Hollywood American cinema. That's right. And you become acquainted with Kale's work, The New Yorker. And you get to know each other as well when you're a very, very young man. Right. I got to know her a couple of years later. 
Um, that all sort of fused for me. I mean, it's almost karma. I agree with you. I mean, Carrie was a very influential review um, of hers in general and one of her most extraordinary pieces. And it was like sheer karma that that was the first Kale review that I ever read. It's almost like I was – it would be not an exaggeration to say that I was a complete lifelong Pauline Kale fanatic – by the time I'd reached the end of a paragraph and a half of that review, that had changed my life right there. Yeah. Because there was something about that opening, about the way that she fused with the movie. And yeah. I fused with her review and fused with the movie even more than I had when watching it. <laughs> and that's what Kale did. She was like a conduit. She was like, she was like the vessel that joined you to the movie. Like I sometimes felt in that era that I would see a film and it didn't matter whether I loved it or whether I just had questions about it. I couldn't have the complete experience of that movie until I read Pauline's review of it. <laughs> she, would, she was, you know, the wizard who would finally connect you to it. And I, I think what that gets into is that way for, for those of us who are, you know, truly out there movie fanatics... It's it's all about identity. I think that's the thing that's maybe gone now in movie culture in terms of kids growing up. For us, these movies completed us. Yes, true. And I keep using this metaphor in my book, but I really mean it, that movies became this thing that I lived inside. I talked about how when I would watch like bad old sci-fi movies on television with my friends, I was like 15 or 16 years old. We were just sitting around, you know, having a laugh or whatever, but... I would start to fantasize that I was living inside a movie like Fantastic Planet, that I was on those sets. I found that very comforting. I wanted to be inside the movie. And I do think that movies at that time, they created this alternate reality. The irony being that the new Hollywood was celebrated for being very gritty and dark for not being escapist. I mean, if you said something like, I like to live inside a movie dream world and my favorite movies are Casablanca and old musicals. Right. And you go, well, okay, I understand that. But for me, it was almost like movies like Taxi Driver were like Casablanca. They were like fairy tales, even though they were dark and realistic and all those things. And they were about great social themes and all that. It didn't matter. You you lived inside that you lived inside that film. Those films were like old Hollywood movies. Yeah, uh, but it, soon after 1976, I mean, you realized something after seeing Star Wars in the early summer of 77 that things were going to change. Oh, I didn't realize anything when I saw Star Wars. You really didn't. You didn't come out of that movie and see the lines snaking around throughout the thing and going, and the T-shirts in the in the store window that you passed by in front of, behind the line. You didn't get a moment where. Okay, this well, is something new. Well, I talk about that scene. I came out of the movie, and I saw that, and I did feel that there was something new. But I didn't know what it was, because having just really enjoyed the movie I saw, but having had no more of a connection to it than that, I still say, I mean, I love the first two Star Wars movies, but I'm not, I'm not a Star Wars person. I don't live within that universe. That universe, as I said, is the beginning, in a sense, of a certain kind of movie geek information culture. Um, I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what the new relationship 
to movies that the audience was going to have and the way that the box office was now going to matter in a way that it hadn't. I didn't know any of that stuff at the time. I also didn't have this feeling at all in the late 70s when I was in college that the new Hollywood was ending. I didn't care about that because in those years, that's when I was watching all those films at campus film societies. I was watching the films of the first half of the 70s in the last half of the 70s. So for me, I was I was... I was living the new Hollywood when I was, as it was actually dying. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't think I was, at 13, I was too young to intuit the, this about Star Wars either, uh, when I saw it in 1977. And I don't think anyone felt the full effect of Star Wars on movies, uh, even in 1978 or 79 or 80. Its effect was, um, uh, I think, uh, you began to see the fallout from Star Wars a little bit later than that. But I think I, you started to see it in the 80s. I think that, but briefly just want to get back to Kale for a bit. Um, Paul Schrader was on the podcast and during one segment went deep into his relationship with his uh, second mother slash mentor, Paul and Kale. And it was kind of a withering assessment of her. You know, she had certainly helped him and guided him. But when he didn't do what she wanted, didn't obey her, there was a cutting off on her part uh, to the point of belittling and humiliating him in public and in private, you went through something similar, though hardly as painful and dramatic as what Schrader had to deal with. But Brian De Palma's dress to kill was the beginning of the split. She loved it. One of her longest and most passionate reviews ever is about that film. It was a defining film for her. And yet you thought it was a badly made piece of shit. And what happened between the two of you? Was that the beginning of some kind of that you noticed there was, oh, there's a little bit of a rift here? Well, it wasn't so much that the rift started with uh, dress to kill is that it, it crystallized something in my mind about Pauline, which is that the Paulettes, her followers, her acolytes, the people who mirrored her opinions over and over and over again, I know all these people. And what they'll always tell you is, oh, you didn't have to mirror Pauline's opinion. I could disagree with her. They'll come up with some example. It's usually a movie like Texas Chainsaw Massacre because Pauline didn't really like over-the-top horror films. Right. Say something like, oh, I love Texas Chainsaw. Pauline had no tolerance for it. So there's an example of a disagreement you could have with Pauline. Um, and yet, the Paulettes had a way of agreeing with her about 92% of the time. And what they would say is, oh, well, it's just, you know, I happen to agree. Listen, I agree with Pauline on a number of films. Nashville, Carrie, does that make me a Paulette? What I actually figured out early on was that our tastes were very divergent. We had a lot in common. And we had a lot that was different. I think that's normal. That's healthy. But Pauline wanted you to back her up on the films that she really cared about, where she had an investment. She put her identity as a critic on the line. And she felt, I think, on some level, very insecure about it. I mean, she was really out there for De Palma and certain other films. And she used her followers to kind of shore up the idea that she was right. And she would let you know, you know, with a withering comment or whatever, that she wasn't happy if you disagreed on one of those films. And so I figured out actually very early on, the way that I was a Paulette is I was obsessed with her writing and I was obsessed with her levels of perception, but I never agreed with her all the time. And it just became actually kind of tiring to hang out with her because I realized that I was repressing a part of myself, and I couldn't do that anymore. What were her aesthetic blind spots as a movie reviewer now, looking back? What did she kind of um, miss the boat on? I mean, one movie that jumps to mind that I talk about in the book, uh, it always surprised me that she didn't get this movie, was Sid and Nancy. 
Yeah. I think it's an extraordinary film, and she just didn't like it. Yeah. She could not. She was not really a rock and roller. She didn't have that in her DNA. She was just born. She was born in 1919. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, she caught up with some stuff, but, you know, she wrote about an Elvis documentary once, very intriguingly. But she didn't really have that in her blood. And so I think she didn't relate to stuff like that. Um, and of course, I think her great blind spot is something she loved. I, I believe her great blind spot is Brian De Palma because my take on him is that. And I just, you know, I go back to these films. I, when I watched the De Palma documentary, mm-hmm. I thought that was such an intriguing film. And I find him in that movie so kind of winning. Mm-hmm. I really like Brian De Palma. I feel, I feel like he made the movies he wanted to make for all these decades, and I really respect that. And I always like what he, I like what his movies are in theory. But moved by that film, I went back and I watched Blowout again a um, couple of months ago. So did I. And once again, I know it's like one of Quentin's favorites, and I was, I just like, I don't get it. It doesn't, it doesn't parse. There's stuff in it that doesn't make sense. For instance, here's an example of something in that movie that I think is ridiculous. And I think the fans of it would say, get over it. It doesn't matter. But at one point, after we discover that the um, the car with the blowout of the bridge has been actually filmed, like this is a Bruder film, right? right? A magazine comes out that has stills from that film. So it's kind of like playing off when Life magazine in the mid-60s printed frames from the Zabruder film. And the Travolta character take goes out and buys – this is 1981. Yeah. He goes out and buys that magazine and – cuts out all the frames and makes it into a little film like the Zabruder film. Mm-hmm. And it plays for about 15 seconds. You watch that yeah. car go down the bridge. Well, in order to do that, he would have had to have like 300 frames. I mean, what magazine would come out over this little scandal in Philadelphia and decide to print that many frames from it just doesn't really make sense. I will argue I'm like not looking for realism or logic. I'm looking for a, a, the typical De Palma hallucinatory experience that is just so intensely visual that it could almost be without words without dialogue. It's so interesting that you just watched Blowout because I've had a complicated relationship with Blowout since I saw it in the summer of 1981 where I wanted to like it as much as Pauline Kael had in her review where she called it a great film up there with the Godfather and you know of the, uh, you know the great movies of the But 70s. I got the sense, you know how that was the last line of her review that like yeah. she'd written this 2500 word piece yeah. and then she says the very last line is it's a great movie. Pauline never wrote a review like that. I mean she would declare a movie being great yeah. but she would it felt like i know this just as a writer i felt like she didn't have a last line yeah no that's right. <laughs> and she put it in there i felt but but i mean i felt reading that that she didn't really mean it she didn't really think it's a great movie she wanted it to be that was the side of her that i believe had become a kind of pimp for brian DeBoer. well paul schrader thinks the same thing but i i watched it again uh in the 90s kind of got a little closer in some respects, a little farther in other respects in terms of seeing Blowout as this great film. And then I did watch it uh, a couple of months ago with Todd, who had not seen it. It was one of the few Brian De Palma movies I hadn't shown him yet. And um, I was convinced that on that viewing that it was a masterpiece, that it was the great <laughs> De Palma film. I just... Uh, it was so intense, uh, so visual, and, and yes, there's nonsensical stuff about it, but I I just fell, it, I fell into the dream world of it all, and it ultimately was powerful for me. See, I don't buy – one of the things I don't 
I, I think there's a lot of nonsensical elements in De Palma's movies that bother me, and you could make the case that that puts me in that boring category of not people at all. That, not at all. that Hitchcock called the plausible, <laughs> the people who insist that movies are, be plausible. And yet, a Hitchcock movie, even though it has certain things you can pick out, I mean, Hitchcock movies were very logical in a certain way. I, I do like that in movies. But I don't get this idea of De Palma as being so visually extraordinary that he creates a kind of hypnotic dream world. I don't feel that about those films. I think that Carrie is the one movie of his that does come sort of close to being a dream. Mm -hmm. And it's partly because Mm -hmm. it would be a dream slash nightmare. And there is just a quality when she's up there, you know, when the bucket of blood comes down, you just feel like, yes, that I'm almost in a dream. But, you know, Blowout is a a police procedural. Um, so I don't mm-hmm. get this idea. I don't I don't feel like that's really a defense of it. But I do see it now as, you know, as she called it, portrait of a young artist as a gadgeteer, that there is something that the movie is searching about the notion of being a filmmaker. Uh, what what does it do to your psyche? What what do you have to reconcile with um, that? I don't know. That metaphor uh, resonated with me finally at 52 that I didn't get as a teenager. I don't know why. It just really spoke to me. And also, it just moved faster. And quite honestly, maybe it's... And I thought Vilma Zygmunt's photography was extraordinary most of the time. I, I could also be that I have been so knocked out uh, in with disappointment going to get my suboxone at the arc light every you know weekend and not getting my heroin that maybe that movie it's movie studio movies certainly don't look like that anymore they certainly don't have that kind of and it's certainly not that kind of dramatic pessimism well yeah and listen i mean blowout is a very impressive looking movie but i you know i don't think it necessarily attains this hypnotic level we could probably argue about de palma forever i'll just say one thing about one thing new about him based on my viewing of the de palma documentary i think somebody who would actually disagree with pauline kale's assessment of brian de palma is Brian De Palma, because he really is a gadgeteer. And even in those, even in that movie where he talked about some of those films that Pauline loved, like mm-hmm. Casualties of War or whatever, he was very kind of casual and dismissive about it. The feeling I got about De Palma is that he really did approach each of his films as a kind of project, almost a, a sort of engineering project. Yeah. And in terms of the films of his that he was closest to, uh, I think what came across in that movie is I don't think he would say blowout. I think the one that he would say was Carlito's Way. Right. Now, Carlito's Way, I haven't seen it since it came out. Yeah. I remember it being pretty decent flick. Yeah. No better, no worse. But I wouldn't call it a masterpiece. No. I wouldn't call it hypnotic. I don't know if Pauline had reviewed it, if she would necessarily hail it as a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. But for De Palma, it's the best film he ever made. And it just shows me that I don't think he was even thinking about that stuff. And I think the reason that Terry turned out as brilliantly as it did was it was just one of those magical yeah, collusions of subject matter and acting um, and what De Palma did. It was amazing. Um, but I think he was just always doing the best job he could. I don't think he brought that level of personal obsession to these movies that was there in the filmmakers of his time. I mean, you look at what Scorsese was doing at the time. I mean, there really is a level of 
personal expression going on. I think that was there in Coppola as well, and certainly for Altman. Yeah. Um, now, there are, there's a great tradition in Hollywood of people who see themselves as craftsmen, but we know that they're really artists, like Howard Hawks or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just saying that I feel like Pauline almost projected this element of personal obsession onto him. I also think, I mean, I think one of the things that drove her neurotic over-evaluation of De Palma was her own deep sort of crummy feelings that she had about herself about not liking Hitchcock. I mean, there's someone who's saying De Palma's great. Oh, but Alfred Hitchcock isn't really very good. Psycho isn't really very good. Well, that's an opinion that she held and she put into print, and it's kind of a contradiction. And I think what she was saying is, here finally is someone who can be my Hitchcock. But I think that he's very few people's Hitchcock. Quentin Tarantino feels the same way. And I was surprised when I was interviewing Tarantino for a New York Times magazine article that he had huge problems with Hitchcock and that he actually preferred the Gus Van Sant remake of Psycho to the original. And what he liked about De Palma was that, of course, De Palma... All the things that Hitchcock wanted to do, he wasn't allowed to do because of the conservatism of the era, the movie era. And yet De Palma was allowed to do these things. And that is why for Tarantino, De Palma is a much purer artist on a certain level. But, you know, another movie, Blowout, is from 1981. But there's another movie from 1981 that um, you think even more than... Jaws or Star Wars uh, is the single most damagingly influential movie of the last 40 years, and that's Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Correct. Can you explain briefly why? Absolutely. Um, Star Wars, even though it seemed to single-handedly, 40 years ago, create the whole movie culture that we have, um, only did it part of the way. Uh, I think Star Wars is an extraordinary film, and it's kind of a piece of classicism. I mean, yes. it's a kind of wonderful three-act. It's really moving. I'm always moved by the end of Star Wars. I have to say, uh, just in a I'm with Pauline Kael on Star Wars. I never got it, even when I was 13. Oh, I always really liked it. I think one of the most remarkable things about it is Mark Hamill is not really a good actor. And yet, Luke Skywalker is a great character. There's mm-hmm. just something about the mythology of that movie that works. And I say that as someone who's not obsessed with it. Um, but Raiders was really the movie that changed the game. When I saw it in sneak preview in 1981, I, I, I just, I hated it. And I've, sim- I've seen it since and have adjusted to what it is. I no longer necessarily feel hatred for it. I don't really love it. I found something exhausting about it because I believe Raiders is the movie that breaks with the three-act narrative. Mm-hmm. It, its narrative is basically... Here's Indy, and one thing after another happens to him. That opening sequence is kind of the metaphor for the whole movie. It's almost telling you, tongue-in-cheek, these things are going to keep being thrown at him like a giant boulder, and that's what the plot does. And in a sense, I don't feel any investment in the action. I don't mean that because it's a fun, silly popcorn movie. I just mean even on that level, I don't think there's really anything emotional at work, and I don't think it has the structure to make you care about how it comes out. And I do think, okay, Spielberg simply made a movie in that way because he was he wanted to make his fun high powered versions of his high powered version of the serials of the nineteen fifties or whatever. Forties and the fifties. Uh, but what he ended up doing was forming the template for a kind of franchise movie making that just consists of one thing after another 
happening and we don't really have a stake in the outcome. I think you see the echo of Raiders in the Harry Potter films, in a bad Captain America movie, in so many action films like certain ones of the Fast and Furious franchise where there's just nothing at stake, really. And I think that I think it was hugely, hugely influential. And I think it changed it changed what I'm saying in a way is that it changed the chemistry of what viewers wanted. Because what I saw at that sneak preview, there are certain moments where a critic will sit there not liking a movie and the audience will love it. And the critic thinks a little bit like, Oh, you know, here I am, I'm you know, you feel a little bit like you know, the the curmudgeon, the classic sort of stereotype of the critic. Uh, I'm the only one who doesn't like this movie. But what I felt watching Raiders was I saw what was going on in the audience. And in a sense, I think I glimpsed something about how movie culture was going to change. I said, this movie doesn't really have anything at stake, and the audience does not care. I was 17. Yeah. When I saw it at a sneak preview as well. And I loved it. I was one of those people who saw it five times that summer. Yeah. And I wonder, I haven't gone back to it. Uh, Todd hasn't seen it. And I often wonder, I'm, I'm kind of afraid to go back to it. And I don't know if he'd be bored by it or not. But it is a movie that I'm curious about uh, going back to. And I'm also curious, going, wanting to see after one of uh, the chapters in your book, Michael Mann's Manhunter. Um, you were disappointed in the 1980s because, you know, you'd become a critic in order to write about great movies. And they were the fuel that animated you. You write, I hungered for something shatteringly intense, for an audacity that could match the fabled 1970s, for danger made alive. Fortunately, it turned out that I was living in one of the greatest years for movies since the 70s and god fucking blessed 1986 now uh, for you the three greatest films of the 80s came from that year it was blue velvet it was sid and nancy it was manhunter right all within three months of each other right and you talk about them passionately in your book but just for my own my own curiosity another movie came out that year that for me along with blue velvet kind of summed up the 80s a one-two punch yep. and it was jonathan demi something wild which it often put as the ultimate kind of mid-80s location of where yuppie culture was moving its discontents the darkness of it and i'm wondering what did you think of that movie oh i'm glad you asked me about it you know you know this well whenever you write a book there are things afterwards where you go oh i could have put this in or I should have put this in. And I sort of regret that I didn't talk about something wild. Here's a movie that I actually totally agree with uh, Pauline about and disagree with the rest of the world. Uh, when I first saw Something Wild, I didn't like it. I felt it was about three different movies at once. It didn't hang together for me. Then I saw it again, and I actually think it's an extraordinary film. Mm-hmm. Um, it really achieves this thing where the Jeff Daniels character it starts out as kind of a light screwball comedy, kind of a road movie, and it just very gradually turns darker and darker. And it kind of makes a great statement. It says that if you're this ordinary guy, if you're this nerd hero, Jeff Daniels, and you want to go on a joyride with Melanie Griffith and maybe get with her, well, you can do that. And that's what movies are about, celebrating that. But there's, you're, going to have, you're going to have to pay the price. You're going to have to deal with the danger that she brings along. And you're going to have to defeat it. And Ray Liotta in that movie is incredible. Yeah. First thing he ever did and still the best. Um, so I love the way, in, in a sense, it is. It's the only movie I can think of that is a screwball comedy that turns into a film noir. It really is a film noir. It's about 
what you have to do if you want to win this woman. And I think it's I think it's a great movie. About and it that. goes so much further than another similar movie that came out the year before. That's Martin Scorsese's After Hours, which kind of toyed with the same kind of idea that really I watched a little bit of After Hours. It is dated so completely. I, it's horrifying. I never liked it. No. Uh, I panned it at the time. I mean, I didn't write some horrible pan, but what I said at the time is, this is Scorsese trying to make a piece of sort of entertainment, and it kind of works. I get it, but it was very, it felt very cut and dried to me. And I'm amazed as the years have gone on that it's acquired the reputation it has mm. as this sort of dark movie. Because I agree with you completely. It. It doesn't really go into the darkness. Right. It just kind of stays on the surface. Yeah. And um, whereas Something Wild, a movie, Something Wild is kind of a lost movie. It I is. mean, even at the time, nobody saw it. It's a huge bomb. Nobody talks about it. Nobody remembers it. No one has seen that movie. Yeah. But it's an extraordinary. I think it's one of the highlights in Demi's career. I'm a huge Demi fan. So am I. Um, uh, I mean, uh, I blow hot and cold on him, but when he's great, he's great. Well, and, that has, but that also hasn't been for 30 years. Well, it's been a while, yes. I mean, it's been 30 years. <laughs> I mean, it stopped after Silence of the Lambs. It stopped after Silence of the Lambs. It really did, because the movies are just a uh, kind of... Uh, th- well, I'll tell you the thing that I think almost... <laughs> ruined Jonathan Demi was the reaction to Silence of the Lambs. Completely. I That's think, completely I what happened. I think the, and in a sense, the reaction to Silence of the Lambs in terms of the killer is an early sign of the PC culture that we have now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he was horrified by that. Yeah. He, Jonathan Demi, yeah. the great sort of countercultural liberal, freedom fighter, the John had Renoir, been accused the... of making a homophobic yeah. movie. Yeah. And I think that he's been apologizing for it ever since. That's right. That's right. And, and, and the tragedy of that is that the other thing Silence of the Lambs obviously was, in addition to being just a great movie, which I think it is. Yeah, I agree. It was this huge success. It was it won all the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Pauline Kael, the last time I ever saw her at a screen in the Broadway screening room, mm-hmm. last conversation I ever had with her, we were talking about Silence of the Lambs, and she didn't like it, but she said, it's going to be the psycho of the 90s, and she was right. So he makes the psycho of the 90s. He makes I don't think it's as great a movie as Manhunter, but I still absolutely love Silence of the Lambs the same way so many others do. I love Hopkins' performance in it. Um, I love that it is, is even you know a, a feminist movie in its way. Um, so he has it all at that point, and I think he squandered he squandered the power and the desire for success that he had at that point. You get the job at Entertainment Weekly in 1990, and it becomes, I thought, an exciting magazine. And you detail how, for many reasons, over the decades, it becomes a terrible magazine. At Entertainment Weekly, you sometimes felt pressure to like a film in order to help the magazine. 
and you found hurdles in being a true critic in a corporate culture. The demise of Entertainment Weekly from a lively and opinionated pop culture magazine into a shallow, kiss-assy version of People is one of the saddest examples of what was and is happening in the culture. Your first review is a negative review of Pretty Pretty Woman, and you kind of got into trouble. People didn't really like that. But there are other ominous warnings that you detail throughout, I thought, these fascinating chapters. You were told by someone, quote, we can't put out a successful entertainment magazine by shunning the hype industrial complex and not playing the publicity game that the studios and record companies want us to play. You compromise in your views at times, mildly, because of this, and you are completely honest about this. And there are times you didn't compromise, and you got into a bit of trouble. The negative review you gave, The Marrying Man, was hated by the magazine, and it was threatened to be held back because they wanted Alec Baldwin and Kim Bassinger on the cover. And they knew if the review ran as is, they probably wouldn't get them, and they asked you to go light on your original review and to tone it down. In 1993, you noticed that there was a conspiracy to make criticism function as marketing. So, Owen, what does this say about you? What does this mean to weigh the politics of your response to the powers that be? Well, let's be clear about something, which is that at Entertainment Weekly, I was really given the birth to be an honest critic 99% of the time. Yes, I mean, that true. thing that happened with The Marrying Man, I felt it was very early in the magazine's existence. And my editor, Jim Seymour, said, will you tone this down a little bit? The way you've written, you can still write the same review, but it's just so kind of hostile to, it's going to piss off Alec Baldwin. And I thought to myself, what am I going to do here? Am I going to be the purist? And I said, okay, I'll redo that paragraph. I did. Jim never asked me to, this was 1991, he never asked me to do anything like that again. Jim Seymour basically protected the integrity of criticism and allowed us to write with freedom at Entertainment Weekly. And I did write with freedom really until the end. It was the last couple of years that you started to feel these pressures that I think came not just from the magazine, but the larger pressures that I address in my book, which is there is now a pressure on criticism that's being put on it by criticism itself and by many publications. But I actually think this problem that I wrote about in this book that came out only earlier this year, I actually think the problem is worse now than when I wrote about it. What is this problem? It's the groupthink problem in criticism and the idea that more and more certain opinions are not quite, I want to be careful when I say this word, not quite allowed in of the course. sense that Yes, they are yes. They are allowed. In other words, we still live in America. Yes. But I'll give you an example because this is a movie that I liked in some ways but I have some issues with and I think it's very relevant to talk about now. I'm not over the moon about Moonlight. And I like much about it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if I were reviewing Moonlight for Entertainment Weekly, I didn't review I didn't review it for uh, Variety, Peter DeBruge did. But if I were reviewing it for Entertainment Weekly, I'd probably give it like a B or B plus. There's many things in it that I recommend. B, B minus. But I would say that whatever, wherever it was coming in with the grade, it kind of deviates from the basic opinion about it, which is the hosannas. This, this is the movie masterpiece, that's, magnificent, save movie culture, the greatest is. film of the year. Yeah, and I think it actually has a chance. Um, to win the Oscar, believe it or no, not. No, I don't think so. I no. think La La Land is probably the one that... Well, we'll see. I think that the big question mark there, I'm a big fan of La La Land, but the big question is how La La Land is going gonna, is gonna to play 
And we'll see. I mean, we'll see. Well, are you saying that because you think that they're going to cave into the pressures of diversity? I'm saying that. Because aesthetically, I don't think Moonlight is not an Academy film. Well, I think that what we've been building toward for a while with the Oscars, where more and more kind of smaller films are being nominated, is having those one of those films win, the way that Boyhood almost did. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would have been the fir- first film like that to win. And I think it's possible that something like Moonlight, especially if it crosses over commercially a little more, the same way that you know a movie like Precious perhaps could have won the Oscar. The difference being that... And this is no flaw in the movies. I mean, I think they're both honest movies. I'm not calling that into question about Moonlight. Well, I actually will in one in one second. Uh, there's something about Moonlight that actually does bother me in terms of the honesty factor. But what I was going to say is that, um, yeah, I think that the politics of these films, the way that they represent diversity, yes. the way it connects to the way that, and I think this is part of what the election was about, Identity politics is becoming a larger and larger part of our culture. It started in academia, and identity politics is crossing over more and more into mainstream journalism, mainstream culture. There are good aspects of it, but the second it becomes... The one thing that I think identity politics should not be is intolerant of diversity, because that's what it's about. Of course. And in the case of Moonlight, if I think that critics feel this. If you write a review of Moonlight where you're sort of questioning certain things about it, it's going to be looked at as askance in the culture at large. I'll tell you the problems I have with this movie. Well, first not be all, so mysterious but, about it. Well, yeah. well, first of all, I'm going to say, because by the time this airs, uh, I will have done about 30 minutes uh, on Moonlight in the opening of the preceding podcast. So I completely agree with you on all of these things, and I think I know where you're going to go, and that's what my main complaint about the movie is as well. Well, since you're going to do 30 minutes on it, I'll say this very briefly. Here are the two problems I have with Moonlight. I was kind of with the film in the first two-thirds. My problem is actually all in the last third. Three different actors play the main character, and the second actor is particularly striking. He plays his character as a teenager. He seems very haunted, very damaged. Mm -hmm. In the third act... This character, after having been in prison, grows up into this sort of hulking gangster. And I don't believe that that third actor is the same character. I just think there's something off in the casting. Not because this character couldn't have turned into a sort of street thug, but I just don't, I don't feel the connection between the actors. The larger problem I have, and I think it ties in with that, is that he gets together with this guy at the end that he loved as a teenager. And the whole subversive thing that the movie is presenting is that this kind of character that we think of in a certain stereotypical way could be gay. And yet, I don't think it goes with that completely because it makes the point that he hasn't had sex with anyone since he saw That's a literary conceit. That's not real at all. That would not happen. And that is what the problem with Moonlight is. But it's not just a literary conceit. It's a very conservative conceit. Completely it is, conservative. It, it, is, it is made for audiences to say, oh, well, this is a movie about love. But if you're going to make the case that this hulking young gangster with gold teeth who looks like 50 Cent that he's gay, which subverts a certain stereotype in our culture, well, then go with it. Completely. Because there are, the there are people like that who are gay. And guess what? Like everyone else, 
they have sex. They're on the DL, people. That's right. And especially if you are, you have that body and you're that hot, you're going to get a lot of action. Um, the hand job that stunted him into celibacy for 10 years is a literary conceit from a straight writer-director. Correct. And this is my huge problem with Moonlight and why I don't feel more gay critics are coming out questioning this. Um, you know, when, uh, when Barry Jenkins was asked, well, what happens at the end? Do they have sex? And he, you know, he wags his finger at you and says, oh, Chiron needs more than sex. He needs just a little affection is what he needs. That is a straight person's answer. That is not a gay filmmaker's answer. What about both? Right. What about both? Right. And I feel, I feel that Moonlight is so timid, so non-upfront about its gayness. And I think part of this has to do that it comes from a straight sensibility. Well, that may be true. On the other hand, I would say that a straight person could have made this movie and made a different decision. I don't think it was inherent in the fact that he was straight. I just think that it is a conservative movie that on some level cops out on what it is doing. It cops out it on does. its own terms. It completely does. And my point, though, is since I'm sitting here talking about kind of, you know, the state of criticism is that I don't think this opinion we're saying is right or wrong. I think it should be aired as we're airing it on the, on the podcast. But I think the press feels enormously shy about criticizing a movie that this aura kind of gathers of around. It, it's it, pure starts, it starts at festivals. Yes. And the buzz starts to get going. And as I say in my book, I think more and more the lack of wide-ranging opinions in film criticism is something that film criticism has done to itself. And when critics are asked the question, gee, does criticism matter anymore? I think it still does, but if the answer that's sort of looming there is maybe it doesn't, I would argue that if criticism matters less, if film criticism matters less than it does, it's because film criticism hurt itself because it moved away from the thing that Pauline Kael did, which is Pauline represented the fearless assertion of opinion, and that's what's exciting about criticism. I think in some ways this virus began in music criticism where pop music critics would gather around certain indie bands and now it's you even see this with Beyonce. For instance, could you have written a negative review of Lemonade? I didn't see one. You know, Amy Schumer came out with that parody of it and she was excoriated on social media for parodying Beyonce. I mean, it's gotten to be a time where criticism has sort of reined itself in because I think critics are actually very scared of saying the wrong thing. And if you are, I don't think you can be a real critic. Do you feel constraints of variety about how you can review a movie then? And and who in the industry cares about the reviews and variety the most, do you think? Is it studios? Is it filmmakers? Is it who who is that review directed at in a way for the for the industry? Well, I think that, first of all, I get total freedom at Variety because... I can tell. I can tell by the, the, the scope of your reviews. Yeah. Well, it's also that um, as soon as I started there, I mean, we have now um, a whole slate of critics who I think are writing with um, incredible freedom. And we're just... That's what they want because I think the editors of Variety recognize that in the online universe where opinions just ricochet around... Um, 
you're not going to be doing anybody any good, and you're not going to be doing the brand any good by being conservative and boring. So they've encouraged us in the best direction to be who we are. Um, in terms of who these reviews are going for, I think that definition is shifting. Variety is still a trade, and so it still goes out to people in the industry. But most of the pieces that I write are online only. Most of them are not in the actual print edition of Variety that goes out to people in the industry. And so that means that they are read by potentially a wider audience, and we're looking for a wider audience. We're sort of a trade plus a larger audience that there would have been no context for 30 years ago because of online culture. Um, In terms of who in the industry reads the reviews with most attention, whether it's filmmakers, producers. I don't know. I, I don't know. I wouldn't pick between them. I think it's I think it's all of them. In the last couple of years I thought that I was losing my mind, that maybe movies aren't getting worse, but maybe I'm getting older. But it's not about getting older and becoming more jaded and blase. It is actually about current movie culture. I'm definitely more open-minded and want to see more movies and want to like them much more than my 30-year-old boyfriend or his friends do. So it's not about youth. And I want to talk about movies, and I want to review them on my podcast. And yet there is the notion that people who review movies are mean and unhappy. But I was happy in 1999 when I reviewed movies for Gear, and I'm happy now. And I'm looking for amazement, and I'm just not finding it. Talking critically about movies, as you said in your book, is great fun. And it is not a projection of your inner grump. Movies choose you, as you said earlier on the podcast. The movie wins you over. You don't kill the movie. But sometime in 2014 and 2015 and 2016, I realized that if I had been a film critic employed by someone, I would have been fired, since I really don't like much that's out there, certainly not the big touted indies or the prestige films. So as I said earlier, I actually tried to make a list of things that I liked in movies this year so far. And I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I kind of typed uh, Matthias Sean Hart uh, naked in anything, uh, preferably naked, um, (laughs) you know, the tackiness. I kind of liked, it's not a good movie by any means, but I kind of liked the tackiness and what the hell attitude of the absolutely fabulous movie. But really... um, the Channing Tatum musical number in Hail Caesar, which is a movie I really didn't respond to. And also, there's that Alden Ehrenbach little scene that's the best scene in the movie. But And then I stopped. And then I stopped. You write, the conventional taste of the critical establishment is so often wrong, as we just discussed. And w- I think, as with you, I can't stand the polite, well-behaved social issues movie. I don't want to see them. Don't like them. That's not what movies are for me. I think Spotlight is a prime example of this. I can't bear Jeff Nichols' recent loving. I found it exasperating. Oh, I liked it quite a bit, actually. Tell me why. Because I thought it was an honest movie. I, oh, I didn't at all. Why didn't you? Why didn't you? Find I think that it completely skirted. Um, uh, her, her defense at the time was that she wasn't fully black and that she was actually a, a mix of um, other races and that she should have been excused. There were The movie is a really a cop-out on looking at some of the more complicated issues of what was really going on in that. And it simplifies it into nothingness, I thought. Well, I think if you just look at the script and the filmmaking, you can say it left out this, it left out that – where I think Loving finds a kind of... I don't think it's a great movie, but where I think it finds a kind of truth is in those performances. I think they're very rich, and I think they create a sense of what the chemistry of these two people are and how two people of different races 
in that time could have a relationship that simply transcends that issue. That is enacted in the movie. I'll say this, though. I wrote a, a, I wrote a column playing off Loving where I made a point. This didn't seem to have much impact, but it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. This is a movie that preaches about you know, free, freedom and that yeah. two people of different races should be able to have a relationship, as is now true in our society. But I made the point that it's not true in our movies. Mm-hmm. It's not true at all in our movies. Basically, it is not allowed in Hollywood movies to have a mixed-race relationship. And you might say, well, not allowed, really? Well, you don't see it. You can't see it in a romantic comedy. You're not going to see a new movie coming out, a new romance starring Emma Stone and Chadwick Boseman. I mean, that's not going to happen. And I think it's interesting that we watch a liberal message movie like Loving and... We all sort of congratulate ourselves for being on the right side of things and living in a society that now has those freedoms, except it doesn't. It's a very conservative society, or at least it's a conservative movie culture. So I find it highly ironic that this movie is coming out of a movie culture that doesn't basically practice that diversity, at least on screen. That's a rigged experience. I felt it was a rigged experience, and I felt that it didn't find anything fresh or new about the situation. And so I guess you can just admire the performances in a way. But I got to tell you, when that Supreme Court decision was being made and the violins and cellos started playing and we cut the, them in their in their farmhouse, I snuck out of the screening room. I, I, I got it. I got it. I got it for the first five minutes. I mean, it's just – that is an experience to me that just – it's not why I go to the movies, to be told something that I already know about and I already feel. Well, what you're saying is that you don't like liberal message movies. No, I don't like liberal message movies. Right. No. And I think that that is a pretty valid point of view in the sense that <laughs> I still can go for one. I did like Loving. On the other hand, in a larger sense, I kind of agree with you because – and maybe this is a certain moment in the culture with the election or everything where we have to look at this again – there is an aspect of liberal message movies, and I think this has gone on for 50 years, where they're kind of preaching to the choir. I don't know how much they change things anymore. And so you could argue what's really the point of liberal message movies. Maybe maybe they preach too much. I mean, they're inherently preaching. Well, I grudgingly and finally uh, – th- this is all a long-winded way of saying that I finally learned to love television. I finally grudgingly made the switch to TV. Yes. The best movie I've seen in 2016 is The Night Of. And the best indies I've seen are probably season one of Atlanta on FX or Girls on HBO, the last season of Girls. I mean – I had been arguing against TV being better than movies uselessly for the first two seasons of this podcast. But, you know, I had to fall into it. Now, I know it's like, it doesn't matter. What does better mean? Why does TV have to be better than movies? But that conversation was happening and the two had been somehow connected. But, you know, I saw over the weekend, I saw Arrival and I saw Billy Flynn's uh, Long Halftime Walk. I... Sorry, I don't think those two movies bode necessarily well for the future, a healthy future for a certain kind of adult American movie at all. And I'm fascinated by that they were seen to be something that they aren't. Well, first of all, Billy Lynn is kind of an anomaly. I'm one of the only critics who really liked it. Mm -hmm. I will go to bat for it. I don't know what it bodes for the future. I think it's a real anomaly. One thing I have to say about that movie is it's a movie about 
Iraq war soldiers who come back for a bit, that movie wouldn't have played in 2006. I mean, the thing that's been established ever since 9-11 is audiences do not want to see movies about Iraq or that experience. They just don't care well, about it. See Amer- well, no, you're right. I mean, American Sniper might be a... I think American Sniper is a classic example of a movie that was a, a major, major hit for all the wrong reasons. I mean, I did find it... To be, I usually like Clint Eastwood. I'm a big fan of Sully, for instance, but I thought American Sniper actually was a kind of conservative, demagogic movie. Not because it was about a sniper, but because it kind of told a lot of lies about the Iraq war and how we got into it. Um, I, I just, I had major problems with that movie. Um, and I think the reason that it could be a hit is that it was essentially experienced as a, as a combat action film rather than as a movie that really takes you inside combat the way that, you know, the great war films have where it shows you the dark side of it and the damage and the death. I think that was underplayed in that movie. But having said that, so I don't know what kind of audience there is for Billy Lynn. Uh, I agree with you about Arrival, and there's a way that um, I liked it for a while, and then it kind of just started to fade for me. But I got a reader comment on – I did a a post over the weekend about Arrival. I'd already reviewed it for the Venice Film Festival. I did a post expecting that the movie, you know, would have a decent opening weekend, but basically this was not going to be a big movie in our culture. And my post was all about how UFO culture is kind of fading. I mean, we used to have a real obsession with it. I read this. And I just think it's, you know, kind of on the wane. But what happened is the movie opened and made $24 million dollars. And the whole industry has greeted it as if this is, you know, some record-breaking sum. And I'm thinking, really? I don't know. It's a big movie about aliens. Why wouldn't it make $24 million? I got a comment on my post that basically said, this is the most ignorant piece I've ever read in a trade. Because don't you understand? This is this sort of small little movie. It's amazing that it did this kind of business. And I thought, wow, this is where movie culture is at. Arrival is now an art film. Arrival is now almost like, you know, Moonlight crossing over and being a success. And I thought, that's actually not true. It's just a big movie about aliens starring Amy Adams. Um, Why wouldn't it make a lot of money? But I think a lot of people said, well, it's not a Marvel movie. And it is a serious drama made by a serious filmmaker. Therefore, it's now what passes for serious drama in the movies. And it just shows you the way that these definitions have been reconfigured by our all-popcorn-all-the-time escapist culture. Even Arrival now counts as a sort of little movie that could. See you. 